0: This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com.
1: Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.
0: Hi everybody, this is Dr. David Perodin and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Today, I'll be talking about who is in charge of school safety in America. Now you're going to be thinking, hey, it's the feds, right? Well, we'll find out. And that's actually much more Complicated and probably much more alarming than what you're thinking right now. So, anecdotes. Um, The pavement was removed from the road in front of our house. Much applause for that because the road was in horrible condition uh, for years. You know, since since we moved here in 2002, it kept being this mosaic of different layers of of asphalt patching um so yeah it was horrible um it had just degraded so they removed it and now they're really going to town on this process called roller compacting so it's the you know traditional roller which would flatten out the pavement but it's going over the sub base which is they dug out about two feet and then they poured in a uh, brand-new sub-base, which is kind of like a mixture of gravel and, and dirt. And then they they go over it with this roller and basically pound it down. And you're, the entire house shakes when they do this. And they've been going up and down the street doing this um, to get a good base, right? to get a really solid base. But I don't remember that anywhere when I was growing up. Like when they replaced pavement in front of our house and stuff, it was a pretty quick process. And this is like being... In a zone where you have the aftershocks of uh, earthquake. I mean, it's just everything kind of rumbles. Not to the point where you're concerned, but to the point where everything rumbles in the house. So, I'm checking, making sure. Yeah, nothing has cracked or anything like that. Um, but it definitely um, is noticed by the cats. Their ears go up, and I'm sure they'll be glad when this project is done. Which looks like it's going to be early next week. So... I'm glad, very glad. And then, you know, every time you look at a house and there's new pavement in front, kind of makes the house look a little refreshed and new also. But it's just so um, so much needed. So glad to have the new blacktop. I guess you get excited about those things when you get to be my age. Um, but I remember as a kid, like they put in uh, some new blacktop Um, and my neighbors and I, we must've been maybe like eight or nine at the time. And we stood on the lawns and just kind of watched this process unfold and check everything out after it was done. So yeah, pretty amazing. I got in two bike treks in the last week and I intend to go out again tomorrow. Um, each one in excess of, of 40 miles, just really nice country roads, um, you know, mid to upper 80s, a little bit of humidity. But I like that. That works well for me. Saw uh, an eagle in the middle of the, of, of the road. Um, it was eating a raccoon carcass, actually. Did canoeing with my dad years ago on a lake and frequently saw eagles flying overhead or coming down and snatching fish out of the lake. Also, the cranes were out Um these sandhill cranes. As I was biking, I saw them in fields, and they've been in our neighborhood lately. They've walked through our backyard. So a lot of nature, Um, but it feels great to be back out on the bike again. Everything's running great with the bike. I felt terrific. Um, So a couple more trucks of of this distance, and then I'm going to plan something out that's going to be more in the 70 to 80 mile range. Um, But I'm We've really had the weather after a cold, rainy spring. So I went to my daughter's swim lesson last week, and I had been dealing with a sore back and actually a sore uh, thigh, a glute muscle. Um, And the whole thing is kind of ridiculous how it started because we were on vacation a month ago, and when we were done, packing up our our luggage at the resort and taking it down to the car, um, I strained my back and my thigh, and uh, it really impacted me the next day. I mean, for a few days, I couldn't bend down and put my socks on, tie my shoes, so I thought I did something pretty serious, but then, you know, uh, things got back, got to feel better, and like I said, I biked, everything felt good, but still, um, you know, that gluten thigh is still taking... That region is still taking a little while to, to heal. But um, first time in my life I used Bengay. I used Bengay Ultra because if you're going to go with Ben Bengay, go for the strongest stuff out there, right? So Bengay Ultra. And amazingly, like, the stuff worked really well. Um, and so I felt good. took some ibuprofen because, I mean, at, at the pool, you've got the aluminum bleachers and... So you don't have much support, not very comfortable. Um, and then you're sitting, you know, through a 45-minute swim lesson. Um, so I'm like, oh, man, this is – I've got to do something because um, otherwise it's just going to be way too uncomfortable. So I'm using Bengay. and um, But obviously it has a smell to it, right? Um, I'm sitting in the bleacher. There's three, three rows. I'm sitting in the third row. And the family in the first row – there's uh, three boys, and the mom and dad, and then there's another boy who's out swimming. And uh, one of the boys says uh, to dad, he's like, what's that smell? That, And then the dad's like, oh, yeah, they must have added chlorine to the pool. And I'm thinking, you know what? Well, that's obviously me, right, with the Ben Bengay. Um, that's the kid. Kids are detecting it they're looking around they're like what's up what's up and dad's like it's chlorine it's the pool they must have done something with it so perfect cover story right so if you have been gay and you're sitting next to a pool like it's an easy no one's really going to question that too much i mean because you got the chlorine smell and do they treat the pool or do they clean the deck so you're pretty safe in that setting versus being out like at a baseball game or something like that but so yeah um Finally, you know, 47 years old, which I don't think is old, but uh, first time I'm using uh, Ben Gay's so I can move around, don't need it anymore, which is good. But uh, shout out to Ben Gay. The product really worked. An unofficial endorsement here from the Safety Doc podcast. But uh, So I got done with my PBS presentation about school safety in America rhetoric versus reality, which I thought went terrific. And it's had about 250 views. On the YouTube channel, right now public television is taking it and they are cutting it down to one hour. It was one hour, but then it's the, and the YouTube version. They include the questions, which was another like 28 minutes. Um, and then they're doing the overlays. So they'll have my title, my name, my title, and things like that. And And they'll do some sound editing and, and stuff like that. Closed caption, do a transcript, put it into syndication this fall. All that's happening. But anyway, the raw version is up on... YouTube through Wednesday night at the lab, um, which is part of UW Madison, where I present it in an auditorium I'm in the genetics building. And then that's where public television set up their recording equipment. So they do this. That's like the site that they use to do this. It's really nice. Um, but somebody in Florida, a safety coordinator in Florida, uh, found the video. And just after I had, had done it, you know, like a week later, so he emails me, and this was this was a week ago today, actually. He, he emailed me and said, "Love the video, and I'd like to ask you a few questions. You know, I'm aligned to your statements in the video. Um, are you available some time to talk?" And actually, I was available when I got the email, like I'm like, "Oh, I've got some time like now. I don't know what I was doing, but I said,." Uh, email back, and I said, well, I've got time right now if you can give me a call. So he emails back and said, yeah. So I gave him my number, and he calls. And uh, a few things. One is he goes through, and he's really kind of awestruck that he's talking to me. And I'm pretty modest. I mean, I'm very proud of going to UW-Madison, obtaining a PhD, presenting twice on PBS, things like that. But I mean, um, pretty modest guy. But He's, he's awestruck. He said, I, I've you know done Google search, seen a lot of your videos, a lot of your work, and, and things like that, and your articles. And I didn't think I'd just be able to email you and be on the phone 10 minutes later talking. I said, yeah, appreciate that, you know. Um, so, um, but what can I help you with? And uh, he – he wanted to add learning objectives to their safety goals in the school, which I think was is great. So we talked a little bit about how we might go about doing that. And the big thing was the resistance. How do you introduce this? That's what people want to know. How do you introduce the topic of we're going to do things different for school safety and we're going to add learning objectives into our safety drills and exercises? And I have ways to do that. So I talked through some of those examples and uh, felt I offered benefit to him, but he, he was just excited to talk to me. And I got a kick out of that because, um, you know, I've talked to a number of people who are professional athletes, actors and things like that. Um, and, you know, I appreciate what they've done professionally. But ultimately, when you're talking to them, you know, I'm obtaining their knowledge base and, and um I appreciate that they're they're sharing that with me you know the experiences they've had in their profession and, and their expertise and um so I could see I guess maybe a little bit where he's awestruck with with me and then when I work with some of the other people you know like my friend Danny Woodburn I mean the first time we spoke on the phone I'm like oh my goodness he's Danny Woodburn you know we watch him on Seinfeld and movies and things like that which I still am, you know awestruck and appreciative but I know so much more about him um and you know as as a friend but um so yeah so anyway this this guy's telling me oh back in my day we used to do this for safety and you know kind of an old timer so you know that's they're they're going to just say he's he's you know trying to um superimpose the past on the present and he kept referring to this thing of how he was old and And, you know, the safety had kind of passed him by, like they weren't listening to him because he was from a certain generation. And then at one point I just said, well, like, how old are you? And he said, I'm 47. I'm like, I'm 47 also. (laughs) So, but it was so funny because he was just like, I'm 47. Like no one's listening to me because I'm so ancient in this, this industry And I'm like, oh, man, no, don't say that. The safety doc here is 47. Don't make me feel old. Now, I took a still picture before this. I usually do that before every podcast um, because if I have a glitch in the video, for example, then I would just superimpose that clip over it. And sometimes I'll just use it as the image for the featured image um, for the podcast and then just put the title over. So I took one and I thought, yeah, look. I think I look good, you know, fit. I've been working out and things like that. But a little gray, a little grayer beard here. A little, a little salt and pepper in the hair. Hair's still all there, which is great. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I look, I like it. Looks good. So yeah, forty-seven. Come on, come on, buddy. Um, so yeah, I, I, I got a kick out of that.
1: A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. By the international bestseller, School of Errors, rethinking school safety in America. Now at Barnes and Noble or Amazon.
0: So I've been hearing a term from my uh, military and police uh, friends. Uh, You know, I work with so many wonderful people. But so, well, two terms, force multiplier and iron sharpens iron. So it just, it it became so redundant. I was hearing these. I'm like, well, what is it? So force multiplier is when you you have more um, people or assets in in the military available at a location, you know, if you're going into battle. So it's force multiplier, more forces. So it makes sense, right? Force multiplier. Now, they're... So this is lingo that they get from when they're they're actually working, in you know military or police. Then they take it into civilian, saying force multipliers. If we all work together, we become a more powerful force. Which yeah, I I get it. Um, it's just I didn't. The term was new to me. And then iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron. iron. So it's a proverb of iron sharpens iron. So. You know, meaning that when you work together and you you both work together and kind of challenge each other's content and share each other's knowledge base, that you each become better. And I've had many people, that's been true, iron sharpens iron. So that's, a, that's new to me. Um, but I'm using that, you know, more also. So yeah, so force multiplier and iron sharpens iron. So again, the more I do this work also, the less I know people by their real names. Because um, <laughs> I work with a number of non-disclosure agreements or NDAs, which means I can't identify who I work for, um, whether, well, I just can't. I mean, I I guess I can't go any further than that. Um, There are a number of arrangements I've had through the years and through present with these NDAs. Um, Now, with some of the NDAs, I work with people who you're given an alias and, and eventually, if you know them well enough and you do enough work with them, they'll say, well, here's like my authentic name. Like I've been giving you my alias, which is what I work under. And they probably have multiple aliases. So when they actually give me the authentic name, I don't even know if that's like authentic. So I'm kind of like, well, I'll just kind of call you the alias. I've kind of got used to that. Um, I don't want to, to mix up. So to me, you'll always be, you know, whoever the first person the name was that you used, and so it, it's it's funny that way. I'm with the CID. Although I told your boss I was with the CIA, it throws people off and think I'm with the CIC. I'm not even sure if some of these people their their appearance is authentic. You know, whether it be uh, a beard or you know some of the clothing, I think it's it's different than what they would wear otherwise, and and they would blend in a little more. But it doesn't really matter. To me, and that's the part that I think also the more I work with NDAs, the first time you work with NDAs and, and things that get kind of you know in, into the classified realm, it's a little bit intimidating. Um, but as you get old, like 47, right, it's it's really you know, it's it's not. I mean, you just you respect the people, you respect their position, and also the same thing of like you, you know, I'm never dialing the same number twice. <laughs> that's there is no such thing as a business card or, or like a static number that you're dialing because, you know, you have, you reach these people at different numbers and and things like that. So it, it's, it's kind of – that's kind of fun um, in its own way. But I am very um, blessed to have access to people throughout the intelligence community and, and other agreements um, that I'm working with people and access to uh, information – and professional development that it uh, normally, you know, a citizen wouldn't have access to. So, Anne Sturzinger, author Anne Sturzinger, um, she commented on my PBS presentation, and she she wrote, "Instead of spending a ton of money on school safety, how about you spend a lot of thought? Don't buy bullards or igloos. Teach kids about a thing called the Taurus, which is a giant." Bagel that you orbit as you live your daily life. And uh, Anne was a, a significant um, contributor as I wrote School of, of Airs, helping me to uh, go through and, and edit, helping me to keep an edgy perspective to it. Um, I do have, I don't want to talk too much about it because I um, have a special. Coming out a special podcast on the day the book releases, August 10th. And on that day, I, I talk more in depth about the, how Anne um, contributed to the creation of School of Heirs. So make sure you tune in to that. But Anne Sturzinger, um, that was really a nice uh, comment for her to write. You can find her works on, you know, Amazon and, and different sites. Um, Anne Sturzinger, so um my sponsors so a shout out to the 405 media out of los angeles california the 405 media with john grant and the league of extraordinary podcasters 2 p.m pst daily the safety doc podcast um i have you know over a hundred episodes And you can get the longitudinal archives there at the 405 Media. You can also go to Podbean, Apple Podcast, or if you want to watch me live, or I guess live, but watch the video version, check out YouTube. Every show is up there. So again, the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, also airing the Clary Podcast. Um, I'm at 2 p.m. PST, the Clary Podcast with Aaron Clary brilliant economist um, kind of futurist because uh, wrote um, before or behind the housing crash before the housing crash hit he is very uh, much aware right now that we're in a building an unsustainable kind of building boom for homes and and is raising some red flags on that but um, the clary podcast super um, entertaining you know, Aaron brings an, an edge to economy. So radio and podcast. Check out radioandpodcast.com. Jim Mallard, uh, The Mallard Report. I will also be a guest on The Mallard Report in a few weeks. But radio and podcast. Hey, he has interviewed Roger Stone, um, just a, a tremendous uh, curator of, of podcasts. Also, I'm um, putting together his podcast channel, but but the Mallory Report, you know, where Jim has brought on a tremendous guest and uh, James Fitzgerald, who identified through linguistics that the uh, Unabomber was Ted Kaczynski, uh, George Norrie, Co- Coast to Coast, AM and so, I mean, just so forth. Um, that was, when I was commuting, that was my go-to. I would, I would just download from... Um, radio and podcast and and, and listen and be, I'd loved it. So um, you're going to love it too. Check out radioandpodcast.com.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin. And the Safety Doc Podcast.
0: Accountability in school safety. Who is in charge of school safety? Initially, people believe that the federal government is in charge and that the federal government has several laws on school safety. And it's heavily regulated by the federal government and all of this federal oversight for school safety, right? So it's kind of the rhetoric belief of if you just ask the person on the street who's in charge of school safety, they're going to say the federal government. In most cases, I mean, that's just the way that it is. Um, so we, So we really have like three players here, federal government, state government, and then the individual school districts. Um, so let's talk about federal government. The federal government has actually little to do with school safety. Surprisingly so, but you know, there's some regulation, uh, some bills out there, you know, like the gun free zones and stuff like that. But as far as like actual school safety plans, school safety drills and exercises, um, nope, it's not out there. There isn't a mental Health in schools framework from the feds in 2015. uh, There was a bill that was proposed both to the house and senate that would have put that together. As most bills, you know, in school safety, about 80 percent, it ended up uh, being not enacted. And um, that's kind of the end, you know. So, the federal government will have a ton of resources you can find. Uh, models for school safety plans and there's fema courses that you can take on you know learning instant command systems and things like that so they give a lot of resources and they give recommendations but there aren't laws for school safety plans and school safety drills Um, so yeah so it gets muddy right right here we're right at the part where it's like oh wow um So the feds default to the states, saying states, you can figure this out on your own. This is a state-controlled area. So this also becomes a little tricky because if you have something from the feds, the the argument against that would be if it's something from the feds, it's going to be one size fits all and all districts are different. So this is going to be very hard to implement. Now, the other part to advocate for something from the feds is then Everybody has to, to do it, and you can have some standardization, which will actually help your smaller districts from recreating the wheel and create some uniform aspect of school safety from district to district and actually state to state, which could be good. Um, but nothing really happens at a federal level, and there's nothing on the horizon. Um, uh, we're going to get into a a grant funding cycle that just opened up from the Feds for School Safety and just what a what a mess, hot mess that is. but um, so we go to the states. The states enact laws and regulations for school safety. Now, um, only forty three out of fifty states do that. So Hawaii, Idaho, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, North Dakota, and Pennsylvania do not um, have, and I have it up here on another screen, so I'm just going to look over. Um, school safety plans required. So when we talk about school safety plans, this is also a question of what is a school safety plan? And I guess your state would define that. Wisconsin is defined by the Department of Justice in Act 143. But um, what is a school safety plan? Also, what is a good school safety plan? Like how do you measure these things on a rubric or criteria or, or anything like that? So really subjective. But um, 43 out of 50 states require... Schools to have safety plans run drills. Seven states don't. So we went over the seven states. And I mean, there's some states in there like, you know, Michigan and Pennsylvania, which surprised me because um, I, I kind of perceive those areas as being a little more uh, progressive on this. And uh, Hawaii, um, I, I'm, I'm surprised because of obviously the, the tsunami risk that has been um, always prevalent in Hawaii. But let me go through... I'm, I'm just going to move over here to the other studio, the other camera here in the studio against the other monitor. Great terminology, right? So Hawaii, okay. School safety plan not required. Um, entity responsible for creating the plan. NA. So who is it? Like mostly say local entity or school. Like Florida says, you know, local entity responsible um, which seems like that's the city. I guess it could be also the school. The other ones say, like, Georgia has schools. So I think local entity would really be, like, your city and maybe working with the school, and then Georgia's like, school, it's a school doing it. But Hawaii, it's like, we don't know. There's there's nothing identified here as who's, who's, who's the local entity. Now, we know a lot of these places have safety plans uh, like in these seven states, but... When you don't have it written in law, and when you don't have it identified of who's responsible for creating the plan, you can either assume that it's being just adopted off of the 40 some thousand plans, which are probably on the web. I think I did a search once and found something like that or templates. Um, and you know, it's, you don't have to um, sharpen the plan, right? Because you're not submitting it to anybody who's reviewing it and says, you know, this was good, but this can be improved. So, it, yeah, so, wow, I'm, I'm surprised by that. So, anyway, Hawaii. Law enforcement agency are required to be invo- involved in a plan. Nope, N.A. Um, frequency in which the plan is required to be reviewed and when it uh, should be updated, N.A. Uh, safety plan citation in their um, state law, N.A. Same thing for Idaho, all the way across. Most of Kansas, same thing, you know, all the way across. So, whoa, whoa. Like, that's what surprises me. I'm going to pause here at the state level a little bit. What surprises me on the state level is we're not 50 out of 50. And not because of 20 years of of contemporary school shootings, which start with um, the 1999 Columbine school shooting, but... Also, it was um, December 1st of, of 1958 that the Our Lady of Angels uh, school fire killed 92 students and three nuns in Chicago. So we have 95 people die in a school fire. And I would have thought that that would have been the turning point for a national movement for safety drills. That all, You know, safety drills are... That would have been it, right? Because that was front page news. It was absolutely horrific. Um, And that was considered to be a modern age disaster that should have been preventable. Um, Part of it was a grandfathering in of of building codes. Part of the building was older, things like that. So Chicago um, uh, went and and strengthened their um, safety requirements for um, fire mitigation throughout the schools and changed some grandfathering. Um, exemptions and stuff like that, but it wasn't this this movement across the U.S. And so, if we even go up to, you know, Columbine in 1999, uh, um, Sandy Hook in in 2012, we we still haven't had a, something and a catalyst to get 50 out of 50 states for a safety plan. Um, and we're talking a safety plan could be anything, you know, it could be tornado, um, it could be that we have a, a blackout um, that happens, and, and there there could be something you know, a solar flare knocks out some satellite systems, and you know we we lose a lot of our communication grid or something like that, or storms, you know, freak storms hit. Um, just so many so many things, right, could happen. Earthquakes. Um, we we default to intruder. We know statistically that's very low, one in two million um, of your, your odds. Of being killed by in a, in a school shooting are one in two million for the for your lifetime. Now, what that doesn't take into account though is if there's a school shooting um, in a school you're attending, what your the impact is on you the psychological um, trauma of that event. But that one in two million is actually the most prevalent um, odds we've had. Like that's the highest risk, but it's still. Far behind, like lightning, one in two hundred eighteen thousand. So the states, though this this is, um, it's almost unimaginable. I mean, if if you thought before you tuned into this podcast about school safety, and somebody asked you, you know, do do you believe all the states have regulations for school safety? You're probably saying yes. I mean, I'm probably saying yes before we research this. This is from the Education Commission of the States, by the way. I'll s- cite this out. Um, I've you know confirmed this on a few different sites, but this this is legit. I mean, so we have seven states that aren't on board, and and for a lot of the states that are on board, it's like a checklist, and that's it for whatever safety plan is. Um, so we have a long ways to go. So we talked about who's in charge of school safety. Federal government gives recommendations. States produce laws and regulations, or 43 of them do, but it's in the individual school districts that are interpreting and implementing these laws and regulations. And they're doing that. um, And again, in the seven states, they're kind of doing this on their own at a district level, but it's the the district. So the district is, is interpreting and implementing. Now, There's something called site-based discretion, and this is prevalent in most school districts where you have a school district and district office indicates to, you know, the eight principals in the district, hey, like run your buildings the way you need to run them in order uh, for them to be efficient and effective. Because you're going to run an elementary school different than a high school. If your building is rural, um, it, it might be run differently than an urban Building, um, if your building is old and, you know, has, has multiple levels versus a building that's that's new and has different accessibility features. All of these things, right, are going to come into play. So what happens then is, let's say you have a district where you have eight principles. Those eight principles are going to interpret those policies differently. And uh, safety policies, safety drills, how we're going to run our safety drills in this building So you don't even have that reliability from principle to principle, which, um, you know, you kind of need some flexibility there because your buildings are different, the populations you serve are different. But to not have inter-rater reliability means everyone is interpreting this and and kind of doing this on on their own, uh, which can lead for a lot of implementation of discretion or not a lot of implementation of discretion. So if you apply a lot of discretion, it means you're going to bend that policy that your district has about school safety plans quite a bit to match your building. And if you don't exercise a lot of discretion, you're just going to go by whatever the policy is and just follow that to a T. So there's benefits to both. Um, The benefit of having discretion, of course, is, you know, you you can – Adjust that to fit the population in your building. If you're following to the T of the district policy, you're probably documenting more. Um, you're being more you know, r- rigid on your accountability for making sure your drills are implemented and things like that, your matching policy. Let me talk about Wisconsin. So my state, Wisconsin, we have 421 school districts. That's a lot, right? Because some states you know, literally have like 10 districts in the entire state. Um, but that's the way Wisconsin is. It's 421 districts. And some of those districts are very small. You know, they're un- under 100 kids. So out of that 421, well over half of the districts are 1,000 students or less. And more districts than not are rural. So especially once you, get a, you divide Wisconsin in half, top half, bottom half, top half, very rural. Um, Florence County, for example, entire county goes to one school. So, of that 421 school districts, 2,216 school buildings. Now, that doesn't include your 4K preschool community sites. So, you have thousands of those. It doesn't include portable buildings, um, which are due to overcrowding, for example, waiting for the next referendum uh, so we can, you know, make an addition or whatever. So, like a portable building. These community sites, they never get the same attention for school safety as like the main brick and mortar buildings. Um, and then we also have students taking classes online. So what if you're taking classes completely online? What do you receive for a safety plan or safety instruction? Because the school would still have an obligation to provide that to you. Or what if half of the time you're on campus, half the time you're taking courses online? So you're at home or maybe, you know, off campus at a post-secondary setting. But what if the time you're away is when they're running the safety drills at school, or going over the safety plans. So, what's the induction process? So you're getting brought up to speed on that. So these are these are big questions. So we can tell we have you know two thousand two hundred sixteen school buildings in Wisconsin. Probably each of those buildings will not probably they're doing everything you know independent of each other for school safety. Um, and now we look at a, a, a nationwide level with I think either 120 or 140,000 school buildings, but again, this isn't counting uh, preschool sites and portables, so that number gets up higher. So we have a, a lot of um, opportunities for lack of consistency, and we don't have like a clear threshold that everybody needs to to reach. So this inter-rater reliability needs to somehow be addressed. Um, part of how that seems to get done, or, or the thought is that, you know, universities will do this, right? And I teach for a university, and I teach superintendents and special education directors, so school administrators, that the university will um, help inculcate these folks into the school safety practices. But we know, like, that's not happening. The professional educator standards don't address safety. So... You know, when when we talk about administrators interpreting and implementing, you know, discretion is really it's your experiences um, and your bias, you know, comes into that and your beliefs. So um, you need to be able to check on that, at least as a superintendent, to make sure everybody's uh, where everybody's at with that and if you're okay with it. Um, Because I I talked about in my PBS presentation how I went to one school, an elementary school, and the principal believe that each classroom should have a baseball bat to fight off an intruder and so equipped each classroom, even though other schools in the district did not have baseball bats in classrooms for, you know, fighting an intruder. Um, So just talking about this this inter-rater reliability. So a summary here, who's in charge of school safety? The federal government recommends, but the feds aren't in charge of this. They default it to the states. The states put together laws and regulations, and the school districts then interpret and implement. In some level levels of this, at larger areas like Chicago, um, the cities have some regulations, especially fire codes and things you know that come into play. But um, it's it's really onto the shoulders of school districts. And again, we have seven states that really aren't in the game yet. Um, which is unbelievable for 2019. So when you look at your local district and what they are trying to do, what they're trying to put together for school safety, and why when we have safety hearings, like recently Colorado just had a, their, a school safety a hearing on how to improve um, you know, uh, school safety and, and mental health access for students. And I'll do a podcast soon of where I think it's, um, we got to be very careful about commingling school safety and mental health. They've become almost synonymous in legislation and discussions. Um, I think there is a a reason to not commingle those terms. I, I think independently, authentically, those needs exist. Um, but anyway, so these, these states get together and hold hearings and it's like, well, what works and what are we doing? And And at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, why are we even here? Because we don't. What's our framework? What? And it's it's not that a lack of caring and a lack of vesting by people, but it's just that when you don't have some type of federal framework, at least uh, at a minimum, and some type of federal funding coming out toward this, um, and you leave it to the states, now you've just taken um, that in fifty ways that that can be interpreted, or just the states can say, nope not not for us right now school districts you figure it out in your own and and it puts a lot of also liability responsibility on the districts so this is an area where i completely believe that standardizing could work if you look um you know to to a large extent if you look at reporting systems the state of oregon state of oregon has one reporting system for the entire state safeoregon.com so you can check it out and if you were making a report of a student who, or students making a threat of harm to self or to the school, you could do that by this this one um, system. So I think and, and that's starting to pick up in the country. We're seeing a couple more of those systems. In Wisconsin, I, I think something like that would be good. we have 421 districts. It would give some reliability across districts and districts that don't have any type of reporting system whatsoever instead um, of so these proprietary reporting systems. But in saying that, also some of these systems might be very good, but the question becomes, is it better to have one system as students are more transient moving across districts and staff are more transient, parents moving across districts, so that they recognize these systems from district to district that they move in within the state? Is there a value in that? And I think that there is. So anyway, federal government recommends... State puts together the laws and regulations. School districts interpret and implement. All right. Okay. So this is a late night recording here for the safety doc. So, um, and because it's been warm outside and, you know, working outside and doing stuff. Um, yeah, I get, get tired. The heat kind of takes a little energy out. But get in a night's sleep and ready to go. Um, so, a little sleepy here at the moment, but totally energized for this podcast. An article, uh, Federal Grants Support Local Approaches to School, School Safety, Diane Schaffhauser, um, July 9th, 2019. So, writes an article and, and said, the U.S. Department of Education is now accepting applications for three fiscal year 2019 grant competitions that support locally tailored approaches to school safety. Okay. So again, the feds, instead of putting together a framework or putting together, um, you know, specific training, uh, specific legislation for school safety, there are certain things that would be awesome. Like if we had an institutional review board type approach that was uh, mandated for all schools that they had to have their safety drills and exercises go through that they wouldn't cause harm to participants. And also you'd have learning objectives. would be great. But anyway, so th- what? So this is what the U.S. Department of Ed is doing right now. They're basically handing out money in competitive grants. So competitive grants um, basically mean That the district that can present with the absolute highest needs, those districts, like most poverty, uh, transient population, just, you know, hardships in the community, they're going to get the money. Um, So if a district has done some type of, you know, startup on a program for school safety or community partnerships with mental health providers, and it seems that, you know, they've, they've got some momentum there, and it's like if they had some grant dollars, they could. Push it further, and maybe put a template together for other districts. Like those places won't get funded in these types of grants. Whenever you see the word "competitive," you basically have to identify like your poorest districts, and you look at social vulnerability index data (SVI data). Um, you can find that it's done through census, done through other means, and and that's where these districts um, will receive funding. And typically, that's what I've always seen in these grants. So, okay, so the Fed has put together a total here of, let me add it up, $65 million in competitive grants. So just to give you an idea um, of how much money that is in school safety, school safety right now is a $3 billion to $5 billion industry when we're talking about what is spent, just mostly like on school fortifications. So $3 billion is a pretty well-agreed-upon number. I argue it's closer to five because schools are passing referendums and they're including safety enhancements, which might be, um, you know, new windows and new doors and things like that. Which, you know, possibly yes, you could make that argument. But these are also things that are maintenance items. I know one district in particular which received new doors at one of its schools and had written that into a safety grant. But the doors also had been rusting out to the point where they largely wouldn't even open and close and just got kept pushing down and down the line on maintenance because the district didn't have a lot of money and there were other needs. So um, anyway, we're talking about $65 million here from the U.S. Department of Ed. The Wisconsin Department of Justice in 2018 offered $100 million in grants for improving school safety to its 421 Districts, well, also public and, and private schools in Wisconsin. All of that money was encumbered um, in in over 600 schools. So, um, 100 million in one state. We're talking 65 million. This isn't a lot of money. This is a small amount of money. Okay, very small amount of money for school safety. And also, whenever you put together a grant, grants simply just are not sustainable. If you're putting together a grant. And you know you're giving you grants for fire departments to replace equipment. That might make some sense, right? Because like a fire engine makes like, fire engine might last you 20, 30 years. I mean, so you're going to get long life out of this. But to replace a fire engine, you know it could be six seven hundred thousand dollars for a basic pumper. so a small community might benefit from some grant funding to do that and then you know they maintain it and things like that and it's good for hopefully another 20 30 years but when we're talking about school safety um let me go, let me go through these grants so the first one is project prevent okay project prevent is intended to help districts and schools build their abilities to identify assess and serve students exposed to pervasive violence Funds from the $10 million competition are expected to be used for providing mental health services for trauma or anxiety, support conflict resolution programs, or implement other school-based violence prevention strategies. Anyway, okay, so basically for what? Like no one knows because you don't have a baseline on what is effective mental health, what isn't. School um, staff can't identify anxiety or trauma, arguably. I mean, anxiety is a medical diagnosis, so that is part of the DSM code, over 900 pages of that document, that book, but that's a medical provider. And support conflict resolution programs, that's restorative justice, that's been around for years. Um, But uh, school-based violence prevention strategies, like what? Like, I mean, so there are things out there, positive behavior, intervention, support, like what? What so basically you're asking districts to create something from nothing, when you know so are they going to purchase packages of of presenters to come in and and train and present and say, I see mean, I don't know I mean what do you what do you do with this This is it's so amorphous like you, you could write this to make it fit almost anything, um, and I've seen districts do that you know mental health we're going to get people trained in youth mental health first aid which is a, a great training, um, but it's to recognize symptoms and refer to medical providers. And also then, usually the districts that get this, the issue is in three years, most of the staff have turned over. So all the training leaves with the staff. You don't have enough people train the trainers left to keep these things going. So here's the second one, the $40 million school climate transformation. Got to love these titles, right? Project Prevent, School Climate Transformation competition is intended to provide funding for development enhancement or expansion of school programs that are focused on improving learning conditions and promoting positive school culture for all students like, again what does that mean? The study in California the Mahone Ashang study um, indicated that sunlight improves learning conditions just completely I mean classrooms that have more sunlight the students academically perform better socially perform better and, and just you know numerous things so. What are you going to do there? You know, put more windows in the classroom. I I just, I just don't know. Improve learning conditions. What does that mean? Um, promoting positive school culture. There are already programs out there, positive behavioral intervention and support. So why would you create something that's already in existence? PBIS. It's, it's there. So again, I mean, it's like saying, you know, whoever can invent the best car. It's like, Hey, we've, we've kind of got this down. Um, so, and again, school folks aren't researchers and this this is just really, this, it's weird, but this money will go out to somebody. And school tra- climate transformation, this will transform someone for a year or two, a district, and then the funding will be expended and they'll revert to exactly where they were. Okay. Third one, a $15 million mental health service professional demonstration. Grants will go to programs in which high need Districts team up with colleges or university to expand the pipeline to train school-based mental health services providers. Um, okay, like that model never works anywhere. That's the same replication of saying if we take doctors um, and they work in, you know, rural districts or rural hospitals or inner city hospitals or something, for a number of years we'll forgive part of their loan. A lot of doctors like don't go for that because there's a, enough opportunities in other places that they don't they don't do that. Um, I mean, some do, but this, this just doesn't work. And it's not an issue of what we just need to get the mental, the social workers and stuff into these districts. Like you don't have enough people going into these professions. They're, they're not there to provide in Wisconsin. Here's an example. We have 148 child psychiatrists for the entire state In the Northern part of the state. Can we draw a line through the middle of the state, Northern part of the state, 31 bottom part of the state, you know, there are 37, northern part. Bottom part, 111. Those 111 in four counties. We have 72 counties in Wisconsin. Most of the child psychiatrists are in Dane, Waukesha, Milwaukee, and Brown County. Um, So this whole thing that you're going to put this grant together, and your goal is that you will then have these providers um, in the pipeline because, like, There'll be grad students, they'll be doing their internships in whatever, p- mental health, you know, counseling, uh, social work. I don't, doesn't, I mean, it sounds like you would want also some clinical providers in this so they could diagnose. I mean, do you really think you're going to get a pediatrician to do a round at your school? But I mean, it's it's, again, the language is so vague, grant writers could take advantage of this and whip up almost anything. Um, but this doesn't work. Like we know these type of uh, partnerships just don't work. They've, because here's why we know this has been a model for education for years, right? It's been a model for classroom teachers. You know, we're trying to get a math teacher, we're trying to get a science teacher, so we're going to recruit and bring them in. And give them a couple days, we'll put them up at a hotel and show them what the community is about and, and things like that. Districts do that. I think documentaries like North or South Dakota, I don't know, it's one of the two, um, you know, of, of these rural districts trying to bring in and recruit. And But the teachers are like, you know, if I have a spouse, like, what are they going to do here? Like, what am I going to do here long term? Is this where I really want to be? Some people, yes, some people know, but... Um, but in Wisconsin, you know, it's it's very evident the southern part of the state, like Dane County, very close to where I live. Um, you know, that's where your tech jobs are, and that's where your medical jobs and other and in high wages. So people kind of aggregate, you know, migrate, move to those areas. Um, so near in, in the northern part of the state, you have service deserts. So this isn't going to solve service deserts. Now, this would be an interesting grant if you said. We're going to try like a teletherapy or like um, some some tele services, like that. The providers, you know, you can link up with providers, and maybe rural. We don't where the providers fifty miles away or something, but then they can, you know, sit in and, and have a just kind of like right now, you know, like a, a camera and a screen that they could talk to someone who's a counselor, see what the effects of that would be. But nope, not at all. Like not part of this. Not realizing that it's 2019 we can do these types of things we have the technology that's not a barrier anymore um you know to to do that but no so all three of these are flawed this is just virtue signaling and and here's here's another bad part of this. so the funding for this comes out of the every student succeeds act or ESSA which is really like the basic grant we use to just fund schools so We're not adding to that. We're taking from that to fund this for a few districts throughout the country who will kind of short-term win the lottery in this because it will give them some supports that they wouldn't otherwise have. But kind of just like the lottery, long-term, once the dollars are gone, you're probably going to be almost worse off than what you were because that knowledge is going to go. Your resources are going to be hard to maintain if you're buying resources out of these and then people are going to witness this drop-off in services. And they're going to be like, well, why? Like, why isn't this going? to be like, "Well, the grant's gone. So, all right, S- my friends, uh, thank you so much. Hey, if you wouldn't mind going to Wednesday Night at the Lab, typing that in on YouTube, Wednesday Night, night is N-I-T-E, Wednesday Night at the Lab, you can find my July 3rd presentation. If you could go in, give it a like, give it a comment, give it a view. I'd appreciate it. Share it with friends. Um... Thank you to John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, for syndicating the Safety Doc Podcast. Thank you to all of you. Follow on Twitter at safetyphd.com. My book, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America. Order it right now. Pre-order it. I've been informed uh, that it is in the warehouses as of last week, so they're starting to do distribution. So it officially releases on August 10th. So, yeah, um, it's right around the corner. Make sure you get your copy, 204 pages, rhetoric-free, really what's happening with school safety. You need it if you're a parent, you're a taxpayer, um, if you're an educator. You need this book because it's going to tell you what no one else is willing to tell you about school safety. And it's also fascinating with engaging anecdotes, so many stories from so many people that I brought in to produce this book um, I, I think it's terrific. I think you're going to think it's terrific too. School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America. Go in Amazon, get your copy today. This is David, the safety doc. It's always an honor and a privilege to be providing this community and school safety public service to all of you. Thank you.
1: This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.